This is Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien as she examines America's most infamous true crime cases through the lens of the court, not the court of public opinion. This show will bring you the facts as they were established in the courts and the basis for the decisions of the appeals courts. Here's your host, Lisa O'Brien. In episode 8, Kyle and I are discussing the August 14, 1980 murder of Playboy Playmate Dorothy Stratton. Dorothy was more than a pretty face who stepped off the pages of Playboy and onto our television and theater screens. During the two years between her arrival in Los Angeles and her casting in the movie They All Laughed, Dorothy grew from a shy, confused little girl into a confident woman who knew what she wanted and knew how to stand up for herself. Unfortunately, that meant Dorothy quickly outgrew her hustler boyfriend, later husband, Paul Snyder. While Snyder had some success with promoting car shows and events in Vancouver, they never made enough money to support his extravagant tastes, which included expensive sports card, sports cars and a jewel-encrusted star of David Pendant. We'll talk about Dorothy's early life, her family, her relationship with the older Snyder, their eventual marriage, and her meteoric rise to stardom, which ended when her husband placed the barrel of a shotgun to her face and pulled the trigger. And um, warning for anybody listening, um, this may get graphic because it deals with Playboy, which is a lot of sex and a lot of um, openness and what was a brutal, uh, senseless murder. So good afternoon, Kyle, on that bright and happy note. (laughs) Good afternoon, Lisa. How are you? Pretty good. Thank you. How is your weekend going? It is going very well. The weather's starting to um, really turn nice. So spring, I think, has finally sprung and I'm not expecting an Easter snap. So um, I think uh, before long, it's going to be unbearably hot. Oh, good. Yes, we're we're (laughs) on the way there. We we have been having good weather, beautiful days that you don't want to be inside unless you're me. Um, (laughs) But we have had it's been a little little bit chilly. Not too bad, but a little tiny bit chilly. Yeah, that kind of, as they say, this time of year, if you don't like the weather, just wait a minute. It'll change, yeah. It will change. So, all right. Well, we're talking about Dorothy Stratton um, in a departure. This information is not based on any court cases or facts established in court. It is entirely based upon uh, various media articles contemporaneous to the crime, subsequent uh, documentaries and specials and and looks back at the crime. And uh, there is a lot of information out there, but sometimes it conflicts and sometimes it can't be vetted. So uh, what can you tell us about Dorothy? Yeah, so, well, I will say on a personal note, it's for a lot of people out there, at least, I think of, um, I first remember, I didn't know who she was at the time, but the movie Star 80, which was based on her life with Paul Snyder, which I think came out around the early 80s. For some reason, that was one of the uh, 
one of the early movies that I remember as a kid, I think it was who Mario Hemingway mm-hmm. and the great B movie auteur, uh, Eric Roberts, I think, uh, played Paul as well. Uh, surely Correct. talk about a little bit later. Correct. But yeah, so Dorothy was born is from Vancouver, British Columbia, and was actually her name is actually Hoogstraten. Um, her parents were Dutch immigrants who came to the Vancouver area or somewhere in Canada after World War I, I mean, World War II, and then ultimately settled in Vancouver. Dorothy was born in February the 28th in 1960 in Vancouver, British Columbia to Simon and Nellie Hoogstraten. And she was the oldest of their children. And the father, Simon, left the family sometime around 1963 or 64. Um, Simon and Nellie had a son, John, who was born in 1961, so really close in age. And then, you know, her her mother, after Simon left, remarried and ultimately had um, a younger sister, a younger half-sister, Louise, who was born in 1968. Um, she graduated from Centennial High School in the Vancouver area. And then because her mom had gotten a divorce, she went to work to sort of help her mom make, you know, help uh, make ends meet. And she worked at Dairy Queen around 1974 through 78, where we'll find out she eventually um, met Paul Snyder. And she also did some clerical work as well um, around 1978 before really transitioning um, after she moves to Los Angeles, where she becomes a model and an actress for just a very brief time. It's, It's amazing what an impact she had when you realize her career was only a couple of years. And it was really when she moved to L.A. that she shortened her name and adopted, you know, her name that she's known by, which is Dorothy Stratton. She married Paul Snyder, who I know you will tell us more about him later. They were married on June the 1st, 1979, who, you know, she met in Vancouver and ultimately he took her to Los Angeles and is ultimately going to uh, be the villain of this story. Yes. All right. And now Paul Leslie Snyder. Uh, He was born April 15th, 1951 in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. His father, David Snyder and mother, Evelyn Corin Snyder. um, He was the second child born to the Snyders. He had a sister, Penny, who was born in 1948 and tragically died in 1953. Uh, Then he had a brother, Randall, born in 1954. Randall passed in 2013. And a younger brother, Jeffrey, who was born in 1956 and passed away in 2016. Um, What happened with Penny, Randall, and Jeffrey is unknown because there's not any information out there that would enlighten us on that. Um, Snyder's parents divorced when he was young, I would guess after 1956, when Jeffrey was born. Uh, And Snyder ended up dropping out of school in seventh grade, which would have been around 1965, 1966. Um, In that area, he would have been about, well, 12 or 13. 
Um, although this may be part of the mythology he created to give himself the appearance of yeah, the, a rough and tumble. The street cred, as the kids street call cred, it. Yeah. Um, his family wasn't wealthy by any means, but they were probably lower middle class at the least. Um, and it seems like his his family was actually more middle class than anything else. Uh, but he dropped out claiming he had to support himself. Um, he was a hustler. He was uh, had some success promoting uh, clubs, nightclubs, events like car shows, getting models at the car shows and things like that. But it never made enough money because Paul had these expensive tastes. And if you've seen pictures of him, he's wearing disco wear. Yes. <laughs> he looks like John Travolta. He does. In Saturday Night Fever. And he's got the open shirt, chest hair. And one of the one of his signatures was the star in the diamond encrusted star of David because he was a Jew. Um, and um the you know the gold chains and all that and he didn't leave a good impression of him with just about anybody who encountered him it's it's ironic dorothy was so well liked and so well loved by everyone who ever met her paul snyder opposite even his friends didn't like him yeah yeah it's pretty shocking it's as we had talked about earlier, I don't think in all of the reading about it, I've never really heard anybody say a bad word about her, which is really unheard of, especially for somebody who's so beautiful and famous, you know, mm -hmm. nobody had a bad thing to say about her. Correct. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we talk about Dorothy's journey uh, to and in Los Angeles. Um, now in a bit of irony, uh, another one anyway Snyder is the one who suggested male dancers to Chippendale's founder Steve Banerjee and it was Dorothy who suggested that the dancers wear collars and cuffs as their costume which is similar to the Playboy Bunny costume meaning Dorothy went to Hefner and got him to allow that uh, to happen now, had Snyder asked Hefner, Hefner would have said no. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think Hefner was one of the early people to really see through him. As big as a hustler as Hefner was, even he didn't like, he could yeah. see right through Snyder. <laughs> yeah. Um, and well, Hefner, Hefner presented himself as culture. And he adopted culturally... Uh, he he was a snob and he put forth this image of a cultured intelligent man he played backgammon that was why he had the you know articles about the latest books and things right in playboy but he was just a sleazy sexually repressed predator just like all the men that hung around him were. He just put a bow on it and made yeah. it try to make it try to make it look like, no, that's not who I am. 
Exactly. So, um, the irony, the ultimate irony is that Chippendale's, this did not become profitable until after, long after Schneider was dead. Uh, but also in an, in a, an example of how ineffective as a business person Snyder was, and that was his main flaw. He was not, he considered himself a great businessman, but he really wasn't because when he suggested this and when he got the blessing from Hefner via Dorothy, he didn't get a contract that secured his right as the founder, as the person who came up with the ultimately great idea yeah exactly and Banerjee, we know that he's a scumbag too and he you know i think as i recall kind of quickly uh quickly cast snyder aside after he had the idea and it got off the ground uh well in looking at the uh the timeline i think really he may have cast snyder aside but at the time nothing had come of snyder's idea at that point anyway and more likely than not, it wasn't an immediate moneymaker for Snyder. And Snyder may have just drifted away on his own. Right. That's probably right. Because the success of, of Chippendales didn't really start until 1983, which is three years after Snyder murdered Dorothy and killed himself. Um, as far as Snyder's personality, he was possessive, controlling, sleazy brash overconfident and grasping um ultimately snyder was looking for someone who would support him with him making as little effort as possible in the endeavor yeah he true he truly saw himself as a pimp either <laughs> literally or figuratively Correct. but when he tried his hand at pimping in you know on the outskirts of beverly hills um he, he wasn't good at it. A girl stole from him and cost him <laughs> money. So he, he decided this isn't for me. Um, he also, Dorothy was not the, excuse me, Dorothy was not the first woman he groomed for Playboy. She was just the only one who actually made it. It was successful. He groomed, he tried with ones before her and he tried with ones after her but they didn't they didn't make the cut so um and ultimately uh snyder could not handle losing dorothy who had outgrown him and so he chose to end her life in his own rather than let her go and go on with his life And that's got to be one of the dumbest things he ever did. Without question. Uh, and the most evil things he's ever done. Because um, like you said, he probably, you know, if he would have just moved on, he probably would have had a reasonable, you know, he probably could have ultimately even tried to, you know, sue Banerjee and gotten something from Chippendales, you know, and if he just, if he hadn't been so insane and selfish and, 
you know, well, just crazy. He might have had, he might have actually found what he wanted. He might have been able to ride the Chippendales bandwagon, even if he just got a little percentage of it, mm-hmm. probably would have been enough to, you know, support all the gigantic uh, gold diamond encrusted stars of David <laughs> that he wanted. And, but I think, again, I, I think Snyder was a lot of talk and little action. He was just an ineffective personality. He could yeah, come up with well the ideas said. and he'd come up with the schemes, but then he didn't have the follow through. And he exactly. didn't have the intelligence because he dropped out of school in seventh grade to see things through. Exactly. Well, even with Dorothy, if he would have just kind of gotten out of the way and taken a back seat, she obviously loved him. She was, you know, for some unknown, you know, reason that seems crazy looking back on it, you know, she really did care for him. She married him. If he had Mm -hmm. been had a little self-awareness just to modify his personality and take a back seat, they might have had a really happy relationship. Yeah, he couldn't do that. No, he could get out of his own way. So, um, so yeah, our story of Paul and Dorothy does begin, um, with Snyder. He was a hustler. Um, he came from broken home and he, and he tried to fit in with the criminal element in Vancouver. Um, but he didn't, um, when he got tired of being teased about a slight frame, he, started bodybuilding and bolting himself up but he was not a tall man and people have used the words napoleon complex in addition to paul snyder's name so you know i think he was a little man with big thoughts and not a lot of big follow-through he did join a criminal gang the rounders but he was unsuccessful as a drug dealer due to paranoia which made people nervous because they thought he was probably thought he was going to rat him out to the cops, uh, fear of jail and prison and his fear of drugs. Uh, he apparently ran afoul of a lone shark and was hung from his ankles from a window on the 30th floor of a building in Vancouver by the rounders that adds insult to injury. And so then he briefly moved to Los Angeles, trying his hand as a pimp, on the fringes of Beverly Hills. Uh, so so he, he got the vanilla ice Suge Knight treatment um, <laughs> before it was cool. <laughs> exactly. He was, yeah, uh, vanilla ice was not the first guy dangled from his ankles <laughs> from a building. It was Paul Snyder. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, he did. And, and, but like, as with everything else in his life, he wasn't good. Uh, he wasn't a good pimp. A girl ended up stealing money from him costing him money so he went back to vancouver it was in this was in early 1978 and he and a friend there are differing stories some say a friend a guy friend and some say it was a woman he was actually grooming to try and get her into playboy and if that's the case that says this is what it says about Paul Snyder. He's grooming this woman. He's pretending to be the love of her life and grooming her to get her into Playboy. And he sees this teenage girl behind the counter and he tells the person that he's with, that girl can make me a lot of money. 
So Paul Snyder, not only is he not effective and not a good person, he's just an asshole. Um, he, uh, he did, he got his first look at Dorothy working behind the counter. She was tall, blonde, and she had recently blossomed. Although she was shy, she had a sweet temperament, a positive outlook, and a trusting heart. Um, she seemed to carry through her life. Correct. She, she certainly did. Um, and I think that's why everybody liked her. You couldn't dislike her. If you were unhappy, she would try to make you laugh. Or she would just put her arms around you and let you cry and be there. Um, she was just very good. And, and she had that quality within her family. I think she was kind of the glue that held the family together. Um, Snyder got Dorothy's number from another waitress and called her at home. He was brash and lacked finesse, but his take charge attitude and compliments appealed to Dorothy, probably because losing her father, leaving the yeah. family and she was, and not feeling she wasn't confident in herself. She wasn't confident in her looks. She was an ugly duckling or saw herself as an ugly duckling when the rest of the world saw the beautiful swan. And so um, Paul's compliments, he spoiled her with gifts, jewelry, romantic dinners. Uh, and apparently in private, he was a, more appealing than Snyder in public because he was a teddy bear. In private. Um, Nellie, Dorothy's mother, didn't like Snyder at all. He was too old for her daughter, who was only 18 at the time. Uh, and 19 is the age of adulthood in Canada. So now that relationship would probably be frowned upon, at least in Canada. Um, because Snyder was 26 at the time about to turn 27 um but dorothy's mother faced the choice parents of teenage girls all around the world who fall in love with older men you face the choice of do you forbid it and push them into their arms and lose the girl or do you hope that they open their eyes and see who the guy really is and Nellie chose praying that Dorothy would open her eyes and see what Snyder, who Snyder was. Because yeah, Dorothy, Dorothy seems like the only person who never saw him as a hustler, a sleazy guy. She, and, and again, that was her, one of her downfalls because she always looked for the good in people. Right. She, she always when saw the good in people. When it's like you said, there must there must be something that happened, you know, in private. Maybe he was maybe there were a few times in private where he was a genuinely OK person at some point. But, yeah, it is pretty surprising. That's the thing that always is so tragic about this situation is why she never seemed to really see him for what he was she always even even with him always saw the good in him which you know is so tragic right um yeah and and i think it was the compliments and i think he was able to convince her 
that he loved her, even though he didn't love her, he loved whatever she could give, whatever she could do for him. Um, you know, personally, and it's my speculation, had she not been chosen for Playboy, I think he would have dropped her. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he would have gone on to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So, um, and of course, as soon as he started seeing Dorothy, Snyder wanted her to go to a photographer and have nude pictures taken. Initially, Dorothy resisted. She was very uncomfortable by that. And I don't know that she ever grew comfortable with it. She always had um, a sense of nervousness about it in her, you know, in her Playboy photo shoot. She laughed a lot. She giggled a lot because she thought it was all just kind of absurd. Um, but uh, eventually she relented. Because she was still a minor, according to Canadian law, her mother agreed to sign the authorization required for her to pose nude and have those photos sent for Playboy's 1979 Playmate hunt. So this is 1978, but they're looking in 1978 for the Playmates for 1979. That's how it works in the Playboy world. Right. Um, the photos... Schneider showing what a jerk he was. He had one photographer take pictures, which were were lovely. But then he decided to go to another photographer and have him take the pictures and submit the pictures. I guess the second photographer had more experience with Playboy, right? Than the first. So I think in the end he stiffed the first photographer. I that's right. I believe that's correct. Um, and the second photographer was a man by the name of Honey, who submitted the photographs. Um, Marilyn Grabowski, if you've watched any of the Playboy uh, shows on on A and E, woman looks like Skeletor. <laughs> okay, she's had so much freaking pl plastic <laughs> surgery. You see her skeleton underneath her face. Um. It's awful. I mean, and she she's looked like that since the uh, 80s. <laughs> um, she saw the pictures and she knew, you know, this is this is somebody. Yeah, she she is something it. Yes. Um, so they whisked Dorothy in August 1978. They whisked Dorothy to Los Angeles for test shots for the 25th anniversary Playmate contest. Because they're trying to choose the 25th anniversary Playmate as well as the Playmates throughout the year of 1979. Um, that This trip provided several firsts for Dorothy, including her first plane ride and her first limo ride. Now, if she accompanied her parents to Holland when she was three or four, it wouldn't have actually been her first plane ride unless they took a boat. Which in 1960. 1964 would be a little bit unusual because air travel was getting more affordable during that time right it's entirely possible that they did uh because they weren't a wealthy family um but anyway uh 
Dorothy in the contest, Dorothy finished second overall, partly due to a perceived lack of maturity on her part. Um, in the end, she was chosen as playmate for August 1979. And this is when her last name was shortened at the suggestion of Playboy because Hoog Stratton was just a difficult name for people to deal with. Um, so she shortened her last name to Stratton. And I think it was legally done because um, that's the name on her tombstone. That's the name. That was the name on her driver's license. Um, when this happened, Snyder immediately flew to Los Angeles and proposed. Um, Dorothy and Snyder moved in together in West Los Angeles, and he immediately planned on Dorothy supporting them. However, Dorothy lacked a green card and couldn't legally work, but Hefner stepped in and helped her get a green card and gave her a job at the Century City Playboy Club. So she became a bunny, which enabled her to support herself and Snyder. Um, Snyder always used his lack of a green card to try. I mean, even I think then he used his lack of a green card to try and keep Dorothy tethered to him. Uh, and he yeah. never made any effort, as far as I could see, in that two years to even get a green card. No, and I'm sure, I mean, Hefner probably could have gotten him one, too, just like he did her. He probably could have, you know, he could have pulled some strings if, and helped him out. If she had asked, Hefner would have done it in spite of his, I mean, from the first meeting with Snyder, Hefner despised the man. But was too polite to tell him that to his face. Um, another must in Los Angeles is an agent and Dorothy got, uh, got one by the name of David Wild Wilder, who agreed to represent her after one meeting. Um, and that says a lot because this is a girl, high school graduate, never did any modeling, never did any acting, no training, not even a school play. And he represents her and she was very successful uh she could roller skate so when a movie needed somebody who could roller skate send dorothy when a movie wanted a bunny send dorothy that's how she got a marathon skating was skate town uh perfect woman that's a word that was used by almost every photographer and every director of photography and everybody who dealt with dorothy's pictures she was perfect she had very few flaws that um you know you see with some models that have require a lot of work um although she did have a tendency to gain weight and get more voluptuous uh very quickly um she also did a fantasy island and then the movie galaxina about the uh perfect woman who uh it's for a man to love her is lethal uh, it was a very bad movie not a lot of people will have seen it but uh dorothy was stunning the, yeah i seem to remember that's exactly the way i think most of the most folks describe it terrible movie but she still she still mm -hmm. really 
shown in yeah. that movie and did a really good job. Now, I, Dorothy's a contemporary of mine. So I remember Buck Rogers and I remember Fantasy Island. I didn't see Americathon or Skate Town and I didn't see Galaxina. Um, but uh, I think Galaxina was released not long before she died. Or even it may have even been released slightly posthumously. That's what I yeah, I was thinking I was gonna check. I was thinking it might have even been posthumous. Yeah. So the steady acting work improved Dorothy's income and improved Snyder's ability to spend extravagantly. Um, he also continued to push Dorothy to marry him, likely counting on California's community property laws. Dorothy's friends discouraged the match and Hefner and others wanted Dorothy to cut Snyder loose. But in the end, she chose Snyder, believing that he loved her as much as she loved him. She also believed that she owed him. After all, he was the one who'd gotten her into Playboy magazine. Without him, she'd have been working at a phone company in Canada with her mother, uh, which is interesting. She had applied for the job, got the job, but I don't think she ever worked. Because I think everything with Playboy happened before her first day at work was scheduled. Um, on June 1st, 1979, Dorothy and Snyder were married in Las Vegas. In Las Vegas. In Las Vegas, sorry. Can't say that word. Immediately after the wedding, Dorothy left for a promotional tour in Canada and to star in the Canadian film Autumn Born. While she was away, Dorothy found the West Los Angeles house where he would eventually murder her. It's unclear whether Dorothy purchased the home or whether they were renting it. They were joined by two roommates, Patty and Stephen, who helped with expenses by renting rooms on the second floor. Uh, Snyder and Dorothy moved into the bedroom on the first floor on her return back to Los Angeles. Uh, oddly enough, Patty was a girl Snyder thought could be the next Dorothy. And he had spent a few months grooming her for her big break, which never came. Uh, and I think this was after Dorothy's career took off, but before he and Dorothy really split. Um, Stephen was a doctor and became friends with Snyder during this time. Snyder decorated the house with enlarged photographs of Dorothy and got vanity plates reading Star 80 on his Mercedes. He predicted that Dorothy would be the next playmate of the year and his high hopes, but his high hopes made Dorothy uncomfortable because she felt if she failed, she'd be failing them both. Uh, but she didn't complain. She just kept plodding along. During this time, Dor Snyder was serving as Dorothy's manager and monitoring her drinking and warning her to be wary of the men Playboy Mansion who would promise her the moon and use her up. <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, uh, yeah, I know how ironic. Huh? Yeah, he's exactly. He it's didn't so... want anybody replacing him. Exactly. Uh, but he did coach her on how to turn the men down without hurting their pride. Uh, and also in other sources, I've read that there were three girls who kind of appointed themselves Dorothy's protectors. And they kept the men that they considered predators at bay. Um, and, you know, after watching the Playboy documentaries, I don't think that Dorothy's experience at Playboy was the same as every other woman. 
because I think Dorothy had that something special that everyone could see and they knew she was going to transcend the nudie magazine image and ascend into star category mainstream star category and so i think everybody treated her with kick gloves and i think hafner probably to a degree protected her from the bill cosby's and right. the other people who were just there to have sex with as many women as they could um and i think that includes hefner uh we'll talk about it a little bit later uh but uh, I don't think even Hefner, Dorothy was the only one whose Playboy career was not hurt by the fact she didn't sleep with Hefner. And I don't think that that was ever something he even propositioned her with. That says um, a lot. Yeah. Now, Snyder, he would tell Dorothy who she should be sleeping with to move ahead. And this was something that disgusted Dorothy, which again tells me she was not going to just sleep with anybody who wanted her. And her contemporary writings don't imply that anything happened that she wouldn't have wanted to happen. And she was kind of a one-man woman. When she was in love with somebody, that was it. Yeah, because, I mean, there's really, I mean, there's no rational reason why she would have needed to marry Snyder or even keep him around. You know, most, I would think most people in that situation would have cut him loose the second she walked into the Playboy Mansion and said, you know, thanks for the ride, see you around. But she was obviously very loyal. She was very loyal. She loved him. And again, she felt that she owed him. She felt she would not be there but for his efforts. And I think he reinforced that by telling her that all the time. Um, and I think that in his controlling nature, while she saw it as a lot of women do as love, I think she eventually realized that it wasn't any, it was the furthest thing from that as you could get. Um, absolutely well just the fact that he's even after they're married pimping her out and telling her mm -hmm. who to sleep with just to get ahead shows you all he he doesn't really care about her or their relationship he just cares about what she can do for him i mean i think he she's just an object you know yeah to him a cash cow yeah so um at the mansion dorothy was always welcome and she attended a lot of events through 78 and 79 um, she was instructed to keep her marriage quiet because that would hurt her image. Um, Snyder was not a welcome guest at the mansion. And in fact, um, between his constantly hounding Hefner with money-making schemes, which annoyed the mogul, uh, who saw Snyder as nothing more than a pimp, uh, Snyder also pursued other women while at the mansion with Dorothy Again, saying a lot about him. And there was one dalliance with another woman that got him banned. I don't know who the woman was. Um, uh, 
there's not a lot of information about who it was or or what the circumstances were other than he got caught red-handed or in in flagrante delecto (laughs) and um he was banned from the mansion he could only come if dorothy Dorothy was there was going to bring him and even then she i think she was kind of discouraged after that from bringing him um while snyder saw himself as cool and smooth as i mentioned i think earlier even his friends including max bear jr thought very little of him um i i had forgotten that he was he and dorothy were friends with max bear jr who played jethro in beverly hillbillies and when jethro thinks you're annoying and unsophisticated you must be really a putz exactly and the exact words (laughs) on national television max bear jr used to describe paul snyder was putz um now at some point in this period 1978-1979 uh on the advice of friends and perhaps because bills were not able to be paid because snyder had spent the money dorothy cut Snyder off from her income by forming a corporation which funnels income into the corporation and also by hiring a business manager to handle her finances. Um, Snyder would now have to make do with a stipend provided by Dorothy. He was not happy about this. And I think he saw this as the beginning of the end but he um, didn't take any action at that point. Although I'm sure he, I'm sure Dorothy got a lot of talkings to, but she remained firm and she never went back to letting Paul handle the money. So I think this is the, this is the point where she was beginning to outgrow him. And the point where she stood firm. And no matter what he said or did, she said, no, Paul, it's going to be this way. Yeah, this was really the first time she didn't sort of go back, you know, to doing what he wanted. And as it says, this is probably what really set him off because he probably he definitely wanted her money and fame more than he wanted her. So I could see Mm -hmm. how this would this would upset him a lot more than even her seeing somebody else. All he really cared about was the money and the gravy train. Correct. And that this gravy train, the gravy train was about to throw him off at the next station. In March of 1980, Dorothy began filming her last role and they all laughed. She would be working with Audrey Hepburn, Ben Gazzara and John Ritter. And filming was in New York city, I believe in Manhattan. She had met director Peter Bogdanovich a couple of times at Playboy Mansion. Uh, uh, Bogdanovich was the son of Serbian immigrants, 21 years older than she was. Uh, It was at this point or shortly thereafter that he and Dorothy began a discreet affair, which included her moving into his hotel room in New York. Um, It was very discreet. People who worked on the movie 
in front of and behind the camera said they were discreet. They didn't arrive together. They didn't leave together. They weren't all over each other on set. Um, and he didn't appear to show her any favoritism other than he did expand her role as far as screen time without giving her any additional lines. In April of 1980, Playboy announced its Playmate of the Year. So Dorothy traveled back from New York to Los Angeles, and that Playmate of the Year was Dorothy Stratton. With that title came $200,000 in cash and prizes, which included a Jaguar, a brass bed, and a Laurie negligee, which I vaguely remember was a big deal, very expensive. Um, Snyder pushed Dorothy to put the two hundred thousand dollars into a into a house, but she balked. Uh, he would go find houses, and she would find something wrong with them. Um, and uh, she saw that as him trying to tether himself to her even more than he already was. Um, and his demands for total control over her career, the role she took, and their finances was causing fractures in the relationship relation the affair with bogdanovich notwithstanding uh because i would imagine somebody 21 years older than a you know 20 year old is going to say i know better um but uh in may dorothy briefly met with snyder during a tour of canada and while they attended her mother's wedding Steiner had arranged for several appearances at clubs and car shows for Dorothy. She made some of those appearances, earning Snyder the appearance fees, but there was something not right, and she cut her trip short and refused to make all the all the appearances. So she kind of put her hand in Snyder's pocket and took money out. Uh, and I think it may have been that he was taking the appearance fees and not sending them to her business manager. Exactly. Because they were hers, not his. Yeah, she was doing it. I mean, she could have gotten, she didn't need him to set up an appearance fee at this point. Correct. Um, or the deal was he would take his manager's cut and then send the appearance fees to her business manager. And she may have found out, again, speculation, because there's nothing official about this case at all. Um, she may have found out that he was keeping 100% of the appearance fees. And that wasn't their deal. So she said, okay, you're going to do that. I'm not going to make the appearances. And she cut her trip short and left. Um, and still, Snyder refused to loosen his grip on Dorothy. They argued violently and there were tears. He claims they reconciled. She says they didn't. Um, it's likely that Snyder yet again was using his inability to legally work in California to justify his behavior and his hold on Dorothy and his efforts to control her life, career, and income. To try to save their marriage, Dorothy offered to leave Hollywood and return to Canada, but Snyder declined. And so Dorothy returned to New York City to film, wrap filming on They All Laughed. And it just shows you again, he doesn't really care about her or the marriage. Mm -hmm. All he cares about is how he can monetize her. Right. 
because if he might have gone back to Canada just to try to make things work. Exactly. But he doesn't want to support them. He wants to be supported. Right. He wants to be the kept man. And And the boss. He wants to be the kept boss. (laughs) He wants to be the kept boss. Exactly. And, you know, if, if they left Hollywood, she would work at the phone company with her mother. He would have to get a job in Canada because I am willing to bet that if they went back to Canada, Dorothy would be like, your ass is working. It's going to be both of us supporting this family. And, and and that may not have been, you know, that may have been something too. She may have thought, well, if we go back to Canada, we could start having a family with my career. I can't start having a family right now. And I would bet you anything. She would have loved to have children, you know? Yeah, that's absolutely yeah, I mean, it is. It's interesting. She's looking at basically walking away from a budding film career. You know, you know, she might have thought, well, you know, she could still do movies, but still, you know, she was definitely looking at, you know, stepping away from probably the limelight that she was in at the time just mm-hmm. to go back to work on the marriage. So you can definitely see the marriage, you know, matters to her, clearly doesn't matter to him. Correct. And I think it it's also perhaps one of the reasons that she was so successful was she was not desperate for that success. Exactly. And so she could come off when she went to an interview, she was relaxed. She was charming. She impressed whoever was interviewing her and uh, made herself a good choice. Whereas she wasn't all do anything. Right. Well, they were just so opposite because, you know, she was genuine and not desperate. She didn't have to have it. Whereas he did, he was just constantly, you know, in desperation with the next hustle. Mm -hmm. And for her, I think you're exactly right. That's one of the reasons she was so well loved and she, you know, she was such a good, you know, interview, you know, at budding actress because she didn't need it. She didn't have to try too hard. Whereas he always had to try way too hard. Correct. And have you seen that there's, there are a couple of clips of her interview on Johnny Carson. Yes. Um, and there's one, I haven't seen it, but I've, I've seen a person describe it. Uh, apparently Johnny asked her a question that kind of, perturbed her ticked her off a little bit and her response was genius she asked him to stand up he was asking her what her favorite part of a man was and he was asking her she asked him to stand up she looked him up and down and then when he sat back down she said the chest which didn't require him to stand up at all for her to see And that was, you know, she was very sweet and genuine, a little, you could see a little nervousness, but she was very sweet and genuine. But even then when she was aggravated, she was very subtle and did it. She put him in his place in a way he didn't even realize he'd been put in his place until maybe later. When he watched the clip and thought about it. Yeah, I think you said it really well when, you know, she was 
really clever. You know, she she could play kind of the Marilyn Monroe ditzy blonde because she knew that was the typecast, but she seems very smart and very clever mm-hmm. and, you know, not ditzy at all. And, and that's a great example of how she doesn't have to be mean, but she just very, you know, subtly, you know, kind of puts him in his place. And like you said, mm-hmm. he probably didn't even realize it until a couple of minutes later. Yeah. Or when he watched the clip and then thought about it. Um, it'd be like, you know, the, the, the brilliant comeback that you come up with five minutes after the asshole walked away. Right. <laughs> what, what everybody really, what everybody wants to know is, yeah. What was Chris Rock going to say to Will Smith at the Oscars? Cause exactly. he was going to say something, but he didn't, but yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, I have to say, I, I think Chris Rock handled that beautifully. I, I just, you know, he just said, fine, whatever, sorry, and moved on. He didn't make a big thing out of it, um, although he had every right to. He didn't retaliate. I mean, because, you know, I, 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 he says he's got an anger in him that scares him. So he could have gone over to Will Smith while Will Smith yelling at him about keeping my wife's name out your mouth and gone over and pummeled Will Smith to within an inch of his life. And I don't think anybody would have held that against him. Because, you know, that was a lot of nerve for Will Smith to do that at all. Yelling at him from the seat and heckling him would have been an acceptable response if you think he insulted your wife. And again, I don't think Chris Rock was making a joke about alopecia. I think we're all inferring that it's about alopecia because it was Jada Smith. Uh, to, To digress here. Right. But you know, I think we're all inferring alopecia because it was Jada Pinkett Smith and she's had that struggle. But he didn't say it in a way that makes it seem like it was even about alopecia. No, I think you're right. She was wearing an army green dress. Exactly. He's talking about GI and, you know, and I think I said this, I think we may have said this last week. If you're really so upset about your medical condition wear a wig exactly to an event like that if you're going to be bald and proud then don't say you can't joke about my medical condition that makes me lose my hair yep i think that's exactly right you're kind of a jerk if you make a joke about it but I, like again i think we're inferring that meaning and i don't believe that that was ever chris rock's intent yeah i think that's right yeah he doesn't seem like a particularly mean person Mm-mm. no and you know and and really when you get right down to it you know he's he made a show called everybody hates chris he's as hard on himself as he could be on anybody else 
so even if that was what he was referring to, take it as a fucking joke. And if Jada had a problem with it, if Jada had walked up there and smacked the shit out of him, I wouldn't say shit. <laughs> because she's entitled to that reaction. Will Smith is not entitled to that reaction on her behalf. Those days are over. And considering the dynamics in their relationship, let, da- let Jada take care of her fucking self. And you take care of yourself. I think that's the worst thing to ever happen to Will Smith because he's turning into an asshole where he used to be a very good, upstanding, likable person. Yeah, that's exactly right. And yeah, he was always, you know, he always kind of carried the the fresh prince, you know, kind of personality with him, even, you know, even what, 20, 30 years later, he always yeah. was, you know, seen as kind of a really nice guy. And you're right. He's really, he's really come to look, you know, kind of like a jackass, especially, you know, especially in light of, you know, their open marriage and, you know, they have an interesting relationship. So it seems very strange, right. you know, in an open marriage to be and, extremely angry about a joke. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the other thing too, open marriage, I don't think that that's what he wants. And if that's not what he wants and it's affecting his personality and turning him into a jackass, he needs to get out of the marriage because no matter how much you love her, that bitch is not going to change. Yeah, I think she's going to want to do what she wants to do. If she loves you, cut her loose, she'll change and you'll be it's meant to be. Yeah, and if she doesn't change cut her loose you're better off without her son yeah i think i think he probably you know feels emasculated and that was his way probably of sub- subconsciously uh dealing with some of his emasculation that he feels from their it, relationship or maybe in reality she looked at him he saw how unhappy she was and he felt like if he didn't go smack chris rock she was gonna smack him yeah, later that's probably tonight. right so, you know, he was doing it for self-preservation. But again, if that's the kind of marriage you're in, sweetie, you don't need that in your life because it's making you a person who people are going to stop watching your movies. Your career is going to go down the toilet. And you're not going to get it back because the public is no longer going to like and trust you. So, so will, you know, you want advice, give me a call, <laughs> find me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Uh, because I've always loved him. I love the fact that his, his music, he didn't curse. His songs were good, you know, had a nice beat. You could dance to him, but they didn't have the cursing. When you listened, when you heard him on the radio, you didn't have blank spaces. Exactly. Because they couldn't broadcast. And they were good. Parents don't understand. Great song. I mean, I'm a little bit older than Will, but I enjoyed his music. Get jiggy with it. 
you know, I enjoyed his music. And um, he was one of the reasons I enjoyed it. And I was a big fan of Fresh, Fresh Prince. I watched every episode of that show. That was a great show. You know, so it was. It was a great show and a great cast and and a great family uh, dynamic. So, okay, back to Dorothy and Paul Snyder. Um, now that we've we've solved Will Smith and Jada Pinkett's re- relationship. Now, if, and, if people um, can finish the episode without having uh, get jiggy with it in their head. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I, I hope YouTube doesn't give us crap because we mentioned the songs uh, or the movie titles. <laughs> in June of 1980, uh, Snyder received a letter from Dorothy that declared their legal and financial separation so at that point i think uh paul's demands perhaps the visit in may had led her to decide that their marriage could not survive and to keep in mind that bogdanovich is probably you know the the phantom menace the phantom menace kind of probably whispering in her ear as well (laughs) You know, not not that he's right. not be trying to control her, but is probably saying, hey, you know, you need to get away from him, you know, and maybe she starts to genuinely fall for him and actually start to listen a little bit and maybe finally taking some of those steps away from Snyder. I I haven't found anything in any of the research that I did that suggested. Even though I, I alluded to the fact that him being older, he may have tried to direct her life to a degree and being a movie director. Um, it appears in that stage of the relationship, I don't think he was, they were in kind of the honeymoon phase where he was going to let Dorothy do what Dorothy wanted to do. And if she asked his advice, he would give it. But if she didn't, he would let it be. Now, um, he may have, but I think when it came to the marriage because of their affair, I think Badanovich was wise enough to remain silent. And even if Dorothy asked for his advice to say, I can't tell you what to do. Um, that's just my speculation. Again, the impression I draw from the various things that I've I've read um, later in their relationship, had it been allowed to continue, it, that might have changed because apparently his relationship with Sybil Shepherd did not end on good terms, and his first marriage didn't end on good terms. But I also don't know if whether that had something to do with him hanging out at the Playboy Mansion or not. So, um, and and how much of the how much of the tabloid was just made out of whole cloth um, for Bogdanovich's, and and we'll talk a bit a little bit later about Bogdanovich's character a little bit later. So anyway, um, in response, Snyder cleaned out their joint bank account and closed it and began selling Dorothy's Playboy prizes, including the Jaguar, at a loss. 
The final straw came when Dorothy backed out of a Fair Fawcett-style poster that Snyder was counting on to make him millions. Uh, apparently, the photographers took the proofs to New York, met with Dorothy at Bogdanovich's hotel room. Dorothy looked at the pictures, went in the room, came back out and found all kinds of flaws and things she didn't like. Uh, and then asked if Paul had looked at him or had, had approved him. And then basically just said, look, I really don't want to do this. Go away, leave me alone. Um, and then brushed off the photographers altogether. So Yeah, I remember in one of the, one of the documentaries about this story, Snyder's just irrational obsession with this poster mm -hmm. and just how obsessed he was with it. Well, I, I think that that would come from the fact that she had now said, we're done. Um, and I think the stipend was going to end because she was not only legally separating from him, but financially separating. Exactly. And to do that, she's, she can't be paying him a stipend. So she was really leaving him in a bad, bad place. And then the poster that was ready to go into production and again, make him millions of dollars wasn't going to happen. She wasn't going to let it happen. So um, Snyder put that money into uh, hiring a PI to get evidence of Dorothy's affair with Bogdanovich, either in hopes of gaining an advantage in the divorce or to use to sue Bogdanovich in Canada for interference with his, in his marital contract with Dorothy. Yeah, and um, back to the poster without getting too much into the mm -hmm. other story and just the, the strange parallels of these wasn't there something with the Chippendales later on where Steve Banerjee and Nick DeNoia got crossways, not over a poster, but over the calendars, right? There was another, I think the calendars in that, in the Chippendales case, somehow they got crossways about the calendars. I, it might've been, I had thought, I, I haven't watched that documentary in a few weeks and I, I've missed, I think one or two episodes. But I think they got into a, their dispute came because Denoya's contract of on the road. Uh, basically yeah, the tour, that any yeah, the road tours rides, yeah. were, were his and a hundred percent his when they opened up in New York that that was argued to be a road tour right well and it's funny when you were talking about snyder and Banerjee at the beginning i think as i recall from that documentary denoya basically had this agreement scribbled on a napkin and mm -hmm. snyder you know snyder didn't even get anything on a napkin with Banerjee around chippendales so correct, correct. and for for you kids listening there used to be 
these things called printing and people would actually print things and, and buy posters and calendars before the internet. So these strange things called posters, people used to get pictures of people, famous celebrities, I, put them on their walls. I when think everything they, wasn't on their phones. <laughs> I, I think they actually sell, uh, they still sell posters. I think I've seen them in Walmart. I'm sure they do. Now what they sell, I don't know, but yeah. Oh, back in the 1980s, there were new kids on the block. Um, I put maps on my wall. <laughs> I had a map of Japan and a map of England and a map of New York City and a map of London. Fantastic. Yeah. I always wanted to be a, a cartographer. I love maps, <laughs> but I don't think I had any, I don't think I had many posters, map posters, but mm -hmm. yeah, if you watch young Sheldon, um, uh, Georgie has, uh, I think, like Guns and Roses, and he's got a couple of pinups on his wall. Yeah, I think he might have the Farrah Fawcett calendar, and if I recall. I'm the Missy, poster. Missy had um, Cindy Lauper and probably like a what Debbie a Gibson or Madonna. Band, I think. Mm, yeah, um, probably new maybe, kids. Yeah. I'll have to pay closer attention next time I watch Young Sheldon. And next week I'll report on exact posters. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, uh, yeah, the whole contract thing too with Snyder, again, it shows he was such a poor business person. He didn't think about contracts. And that could be why, you know, that was probably why his promotional business didn't earn him enough money. Exactly. To keep him into the style to which he become accustomed. Um, it was also during this time that Snyder became despondent. The prospect of returning to Canada in defeat was too much. Uh, he called a friend on, on one day crying that he'd never get close to Dorothy again, even though she never she never got security or anybody, anything like that. Um and on another night, Steve, one of the roommates, found Snyder crying in the living room. In July with, of 1980, with filming completed on They All Laughed, Dorothy and Bogdanovich traveled to England for something of an extended vacation. Uh, they returned around the end of July, beginning of August. Uh, Snyder was trying to get a, an invitation to the Playboy Midsummer Night's Dream Party, but his invitation re was rebuffed and he was told... He would only be welcome if Dorothy brought him. Uh, it turns out Dorothy didn't even go to that party anyway. Um, publicly, Dorothy moved into a modest apartment in Beverly Hills when she returned to Los Angeles. But in reality, she had moved into Bogdanovich's Bel Air estate. Uh, while she was in Houston on a promotional tour for Playboy, she called Snyder and agreed to meet with him uh, on August 8th, 1980, to discuss their uh, financial separation, financial arrangements in their divorce. And she was doing this because she felt obligated to take care of her estranged husband. This was in the beginning of August. Snyder's despair then turned to hope because he believed that he could win Dorothy back. He told friends the queen is coming back. Instead, the meeting was a disaster. Dorothy confessed that she was in love with Bogdanovich 
and she was determined to proceed with a financial settlement with Snyder. She gathered the clothes she wanted from the house and told Snyder he'd give the rest to Patty, who was the young girl he had been grooming to be the next Dorothy, which never panned out. During the last week of his life in Dorothy's, Snyder began to exhibit a preoccupation with guns. He'd borrowed a revolver from a friend, but had to return it. It may have been this weapon that he took to Bogdanovich's estate, where he waited outside for hours with the intent to shoot and kill the first person to come out of the gates. Uh, as with most things in Snyder's life, he was unsuccessful because nobody came out and he went home. Snyder sought to replace the revolver with a gun purchased for him by the P.I., since Snyder couldn't legally buy a gun in California. He also asked the PI to procure a machine gun, and both requests were made under the guise, guise of home protection. The PI wisely declined. Undeterred, Snyder found a newspaper ad offering a Mossberg shotgun for sale in San Fernando Valley. He contacted the seller and made arrangements to buy the weapon, but got lost while driving in the valley. Apparently, that happens to a lot of people. The seller helpfully agreed to meet Snyder at a construction site, and the sale was completed. So uh, within a week of murdering Dorothy, he had gotten himself a Mossberg shotgun. Dorothy was in the midst of a visit with Louise, her younger sister, who was visiting from Canada and staying with Dorothy and Bogdanovich in Bel Air. Snyder had expected a promise call on Sunday. August 10th, 1980, but in Snyder's mind, Dorothy snubbed him by not calling until Monday the 11th. During that call, she agreed to meet with Snyder on Thursday to work out a financial settlement, and that Thursday would be August 14th, 1980. The PI wanted to wire Snyder to capture Dorothy's statement that she would always take care of him, but that plan was abandoned because they lacked the equipment. On Wednesday, August 13th, Snyder talked to a friend about other playmates who died unexpectedly and the chaos that caused. According to Snyder, if there was time, Playboy would scramble to try to remove all of the dead play playmates' photos from its magazines. Um, Snyder was exhibiting odd behavior, some of it at odds with his apparently hopeful demeanor, uh, but nobody really put together the murderous intent that was kind of brewing underneath the surface. Well, and he's always been kind of a strange guy where, you know, even his friends don't really care for him. So it's easy to look back in hindsight, but it's probably hard to tell with a guy like that. What's his Correct. normal strange behavior versus what, <laughs> what is, you know, <laughs> homicidal behavior. I love that normal strange behavior versus real strange <laughs> behavior and that is and there are i've known people like that thankfully they never did anything you know bad but i've known people where there was normal strange and then there was just really strange <laughs> hey dude are you okay um according to police reports uh none of which are publicly available on August 14, 1980, Dorothy arrived at the house in West Los Angeles at 11.45 a.m. Um, and this is one of the saddest parts about uh, Dorothy's death because 
She's in the midst of this visit with Louise. They had spent the morning together. She said, I'm going to go talk to Paul. Uh, I'll be back in a couple of hours. We'll do these things tonight. They had made plans. It was going to be so great. And she leaves and never comes back. Um, according to the coroner and the PI, who was apparently watching, um, Dorothy parked her car and entered the house at about 12.30 p.m. Later, it was found she was carrying $1,100, which is believed to be cash she was going to give to Snyder as a down payment on the settlement that their attorneys had worked out. Because apparently his attorney and her attorney had been discussing these things and had worked out something that was making both parties happy. Um, and I think Paul Snyder really lured Dorothy there by lulling her into a false sense of security. Sure, I'm fine. I know this has got to end. It's okay. I'm okay. Um, you're going to take care of me. That's all I ask. Uh, come over so we can talk about it. And so she thought she was walking into a perfectly safe environment and that he was going to calmly and rationally discuss these things and everything was going to be fine. And it was, yeah, she's think, yeah, she's probably thinking she's about to be free. Yeah. Um, the, the deal that they had worked out was that Snyder would leave the marriage with $7,500, uh, which was half of Dorothy's net worth at that time after taxes. That's amazing. Just with it's, um, it's trying to wrap my head around that at this, you know, she, I mean, shortly after the playmate of the year, what she's had, what three or four movies at this time. Mm -hmm. And her net worth is probably what, you know, $20,000. If you think about, you know, gross with the taxes and everything, it's amazing how much. Well, the taxes were probably a bit bigger chunk than uh, because you're talking California and federal. Right. Um, so it was probably her net worth was probably around 30, maybe 25, 30. And then uh, she's not doing withholding. So she's got to probably do estimated tax. And that's going to take a big chunk. Right. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it may have been 20 to 25, let's say 20 to 30. But uh, it's so still amazing how much. Taxes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess she didn't get the 200,000 just in cash. I think some of that was cash correct. and prizes. And, and the prizes he sold. Mm -hmm. um, and she wasn't, uh, she, you know, she wasn't a caliber yet to make a million dollars a picture. Right. She was probably making scale, which is for every day that she filmed, she made X dollars of whatever that was per day. That makes um, sense. But uh, maybe they all laugh might've been a little bit different, but I, I don't think it was that much more. And uh, Snyder may have believed it to be more than, than it was. So that may have been 
it, it may have been that she, when she went there, he was okay. And he was discussing, but he was thinking a bigger number. Right. And when he got the number he got, he was insulted. And then he got angry. Um, a short time after Dorothy had arrived, the PI called and he got a code from Snyder that indicated everything was fine. Dorothy may also have received a call at the house from her agent or a manager and the caller, she told the caller everything was fine. But not long after she arrived, things changed. Um, Snyder, likely realizing that Dorothy had outgrown him and unhappy with the proposed settlement, decided to take drastic measures. Perhaps he thought brute force would win her back. Perhaps he decided that if he couldn't have her, no one could. The shotgun ensured Dorothy's compliance when she was ordered into the bedroom and told to strip. There's evidence that Dorothy was sexually assaulted, likely both before and after her death. When Snyder was done, he shot Dorothy at close range, destroying the beautiful face that had been his meal ticket for two years. It took an hour for the magnitude of what he'd done to sink in for Snyder. He'd always feared jail and prison. He'd often told people he would kill himself first. Unable to take back his heinous murder of Dorothy, Snyder placed the barrel of the shotgun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. Through the afternoon and into the evening and night, the PI called Snyder's phone but got no answers. When Steve and Patty returned that afternoon, they presumed Snyder and Dorothy had reconciled and decided not to disturb them. It was near midnight when the PI contacted Steve and persuaded him to check Snyder's room. Steve and Patty's belief that Snyder and Dorothy had happily reconciled were dashed with the first glance into the bedroom. The sight of Snyder, Dorothy, and the carnage scarred both roommates. And there are some somewhat graphic descriptions of what they found and what they saw. Um, and I elected not to include those. Yeah, I can't. Um, it's yeah, it's even hard even just listening to you describe it as high level as you did. Just I can't even imagine yeah. having to come upon that. Yeah. And I feel. First of all, I feel for her because that is a horrific situation. To find yourself in with a person you thought loved you. And again, I don't think he ever loved her. He was never in love with her. He loved her for what she could give him. For what she could do for him. For what she would provide for him. But he never loved her as a person. And he never saw her as a person. He saw her as a possession. Right. And no, you- there's a lot of sociological, uh, you know, if you read the Village Voice article, that gets in, in the sociological evils of playboy and all that stuff and but in the end paul snyder thought dorothy belonged to him and he could do with her as he pleased and that's that's it it doesn't matter why or what playboy or hefner or any of that stuff no it's what paul snyder believed and that was what he believed exactly do you think he intended you know do you think he woke up that morning intending to kill her if she wouldn't I, reconcile, or do you think it was more no, of a heat of the moment? 
I, I think he had resolved himself to killing her because remember, there's a, there's a night that he sits in front of Bogdanovich's house, place, right. waiting for somebody to come out. So he was resolved to kill somebody, whether it would be Dorothy or Bogdanovich. He may have not really cared, but I think he had resolved to it was going to end one way or the other. He was going to get exactly what he wanted, which was Dorothy to stay with him and continue supporting him. Or he was going to take her out. And I think, I think perhaps he entertained a heat of the moment, heat of passion defense. Hmm. And then realized Dorothy is not the kind of person that people are going to believe drove him to do what he did and that so many people loved her and so many people did not love him that he was going to have a long road to hoe to get away with what he'd done exactly and so he elected to go ahead and just take himself out yeah exactly when you said from the beginning right he he was paranoid and, you know, afraid of prison and, you know, there's yeah. no way he was going to end up right. spending the rest of his life in prison. And I think he was, at the heart of it, I think he really was a fraud. I mean, I think his, his backstory was a fraud. And I think that he was a fraud. He wasn't accomplished. He wasn't a good businessman. He wasn't any of the things that he tried to tell people he was. And one of the sickest things is he apparently uh, built some kind of sex bench out of a weight bench. Um, and I didn't go into that either. But um, that was prominent in the bedroom. And, you know, that may very well also have been one of the things that Dorothy kind of outgrew. She was not experienced when she met Snyder. And she may have taken the their sex life as being, quote, normal. But then when she met Bogdanovich and started the affair with him, realized what she had with Snyder wasn't normal and it wasn't love. Yeah, exactly. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, she... Yeah. It, you know, yeah, it's like a lot of things can be normal if you don't know any better, right? Yeah. And um, and I think that was, you know, I think that was the other reason that she was finally able to outgrow him and and try to get away was that I think she had realized he doesn't really love me. But I think she thought he wouldn't hurt her. And that was a mistaken belief, but yeah. she went because she felt he deserved more than a cold meeting with lawyers. Right. Yeah. It just shows you that, you know, what a sweet person she was that even through all that he had put her through, she still wanted to give him the dignity of, you know, saying goodbye, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, at least trying to walk away amicably as best it could, like you said, versus just, you know, having, a meeting with lawyers he mm -hmm. thought he was she was going to give him the dignity of you know saying goodbye and treating right. him like you know 
Correct. Her husband. Yeah. So um, in the aftermath, on the 15th of August, 1980, the PI arrived at the crime scene before police. Um, and he was the one who contacted Hefner to break the news of Dorothy's death. More likely than not, the PI, knowing Snyder and Dorothy's connection to Playboy, hoped to earn some goodwill from the mogul. It was Hefner who broke the news to Bogdanovich. Dorothy's death irreparably fractured their friendship, although they remained briefly united in their shared grief. Louise, who was visiting Los Angeles away from her mother and brother, lost the sister she'd told, see you later, less than 24 hours before. Nellie lost her oldest child to a man she'd never liked, but she'd stayed silent for fear of pushing Dorothy closer to him and away from her. John lost his older sister, and there's not a lot known about John. Um, he has remained kind of an enigma in all this. Bogdanovich arranged for Dorothy's cremation and burial of the urn containing her ashes in a plot that he could visit. He believed he'd lost the love of his life. He also took the Hoogstraten family under his wing, providing for them and helping them even until his death in 2022. He and Louise were married in 1988 and divorced in 2001, but remained close. And I think Louise and, his, and her mother were still living with him. He had been diagnosed with Parkinson's. Yeah, because he just passed away in January, right? Yeah, and he died as a complication of Parkinson's. And I think Nellie and Louise were living with him and caring for him. They all laughed, was released, but failed to garner the critical or popular success of Bogdanovich's other films. The story of Dorothy's life and death became an article in the Village Voice that won a Pulitzer Prize. It also became a made-for-TV movie and theatrical film directed by Bob Fosse. Bogdanovich was happy about neither. He refused to allow the use of his name and threatened to sue if Fosse's version portrayed him at all negatively. Bogdanovich wrote The Killing of the Unicorn, in which he made an allegation about Hefner forcing himself on Dorothy early in her Playboy career. Now, I don't find this to be correct, as we discussed a little earlier. Um, none of Dorothy's contemporaneous writings mention anything of the sort happening with Hefner or anyone else. And she was fairly honest and open in her journaling and in her poetry. Um, also, the girls, you know, kind of uh, appointed themselves as her protectors. Mm -hmm. And so I think that she they would have kept anyone at bay. There is a butler from the mansion days who claims to have seen Hefner in the act of sexually assaulting Dorothy. Uh, in the grotto, but he didn't come forward until 2020 or 22 or whenever this Secrets of Playboy was filmed. So I kind of don't put a lot of stock in his memory. He may have, he may think it was Dorothy Stratton when in reality, what he saw was something, someone else. And he's just in his mind, right? Decided it was Dorothy Stratton. Um, in retaliation for those allegations by Bogdanovich, uh, the relationship with Hefner fractured and broke into a million pieces. Uh, Hefner accused Bogdanovich of causing a stroke with the allegation. 
and then went on to make allegations of his own. He claimed that Bogdanovich began a relationship with Louise Hoogstraden when Louise was only 13. In other words, after Dorothy died, he immediately began a relationship with her sister. Uh, he went on to accuse Bogdanovich of forcing Louise to undergo plastic surgeries to make her look more like her dead sister. Um, Nellie and Louise sued Hefner, but their claims were quickly dismissed. The PI tried unsuccessfully to convince police that there was foul play involved in the deaths of Snyder and Dorothy. And while a forensic confirmation that Snyder fired the fatal shots couldn't be made due to the amount of blood on his hands, that was insufficient to place the third person in the room with a naked Snyder and Dorothy on August 14, 1980. Uh, I think also the PI could never say who this might have been. Um, plus, we've got you know the evidence that Snyder bought the Mossberg shotgun. Right. Well, there's no motive. I mean, himself. who would have who would have wanted to kill them? It just doesn't right. make a exactly. lot of sense. And so, you know, it's kind of unlikely that a, a stranger would come in, pick up the gun Snyder just bought. Uh, and and in Snyder's resolve to kill somebody, he made sure he had a gun. You know, good old Paul Snyder, he's gonna do the easy way. He's not gonna stab somebody or beat somebody because that's too much fucking work. He's going to use a shotgun. Um, so sorry, true. that interjection just came into my head and I had to say it. No, but you're so <laughs> right. Every It's always the easiest, easy way out, even yeah. from his suicide. Yeah. Oh, and and his murder. Yeah. Um, the PI also became a defendant in a lawsuit. I'm not quite sure by whom. Uh, due to allegations that he knew of Snyder's deteriorating emotional state and his obsession with obtaining a gun, his frequent calls to the house that day, and his arrival at the scene before police gave somebody the idea that he knew something was going to happen before it happened and had failed to notify authorities and stop it. Yeah, because it is kind of strange that he, I know they had talked about wanting to record her, but it is kind of strange he was at the house. Right, and, and at, even after getting the everything's fine signal, he continued calling. Right. And then finally at midnight calls and says, Hey, Steve, could y'all go down and check on Dorothy and Paul? Cause they're not answering their phone. And I kind of think we need to check on them instead of yeah. him at midnight, coming to the house and knocking on the door and say, Hey, I've been trying to call Paul. He's not answering. Can I come in and make sure he's okay? Yeah. Because, you know, you know Snyder's always been kind of a loudmouth braggart. I can't imagine he, didn't make some, you know, brag about to the PI about being in front of Bogdanovich's house and probably also, you know, told the PI, you know, what a big man he was and that he was going to force Dorothy, you know, to give him what he wanted. But I, yeah, but I, I think even if he said, I'm going to kill her, I don't think anybody would have taken him seriously. You know, but yeah, like fair. I said, the, the, all that information and the PI had it all, the inference could be made that he knew and that maybe he knew something had happened. And so that's why he didn't come to the house himself. He got Stephen and Patty to go see what's going on. Um, but it, it wasn't a successful claim 
Uh, it was quickly dismissed and it leaves no trace of existence. None of the lawsuits that came out of this case were even reported. Because I it probably went trial court dismissed, no appeal. Or an appeal that was unreported. Um, in the end, the world lost Dorothy, a young, beautiful woman who was more than a pretty face. In two years, the shy, confused girl from Vancouver became a confident woman who knew what she wanted and how to stand up for herself. Her downfall was her kind heart and her belief that Steiner deserved more from her than a cold, impersonal meeting with lawyers to settle their marital estate. Dorothy Stratton stepped out of the pages of Playboy and onto the screens of TVs and movie theaters. She had the potential to become a talented and successful actress. Her light was snuffed out by a man who was supposed to love her, but only wanted to possess her and live off of her successful career and the income it brought. And that really is the saddest part. Because if she'd have been a cool bitch, this wouldn't have been able to happen because she would have walked away in June and said no more. Exactly. Yeah, it was her kindness that ultimately led to her death. It's mm -hmm. so tragic. Yeah. So, but that is, um, uh, and, and it's, it's harder to, to do a summary like this and profile a case like this without the court opinions. Because there's such a fine line when you read articles like the Village Voice article. Again, it won a Pulitzer Prize and I would highly recommend you can find it. Um, Vanity, uh, there's an online magazine maybe even online village voice that has published it in, on the anniversary in 2020 or republished it. Um, and I would recommend anybody who's interested in this story, read that article because it provides a lot of information. Um, and it really is a good profile of Dorothy's life, Paul's life and her rise and fall. Yeah, it is a fantastic article. And then, of course, 2020 did um, an episode in 2019. Um, that was also a very good effort in 2020. And I have a bit of a troubling history, but I would recommend watching it because it did. Um, although I thought it was kind of strange in 2019 for 2020 to be looking back at a murder that occurred in 1980. Um, there was kind of a disconnect there. I, I could see if they decided to do it in August of 2020. But I guess I'm glad they did because in August of 2020, they were having difficulty coming up with new content. So they were recycling a lot of old content. So, you still there, Kyle? 
Yeah. I'm sorry. Did I move you to tears? No, not at all. But no, it was a very good. Yeah, it is. It's you just think it is such a tragic story. It's just it's a shame. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you just wonder, you know, would she have faded out, you know, by 85? Or, you know, would she have won a couple of Academy Awards? Because, you know, I was kind of thinking originally, you know, in some ways, not an exact parallel, but, you know, someone who came along, what, 20 years later, or 15 years later, maybe another Canadian, you know, Pam Anderson, you know, it's kind of similar, you know, mm-hmm. really young, fresh faced, you know, started to get, you know, a modest acting career. And then sort of, you know, I guess is with some strange relationships herself as kind of, you know, faded, I just, you know, I was just contemplating, you know, what would have Dorothy Stratton been today if she starred in all of Bogdanovich's movies and won an Academy Award, or maybe, you know, she would have faded, faded from memory. It's hard to say, but it's a tragic story regardless. I think, unfortunately, Bogdanovich's genius was kind of on the decline because they all laughed, did not have the critical or popular success of some of of his other movies. And, And it wasn't the first one to not be the critical success that uh uh last picture show right what's up doc some of the other movies that he had made yeah because i I was looking at his filmography and really you know he made mask in 1985 with you know share but that seems to be really the last the last movie that he made that was maybe you know popularly mm-hmm. successful if you will yeah um i don't know you know and and i think the the irony is dorothy would have been perfectly happy going back to vancouver and becoming a secretary at the phone company exactly and having a simple you know a simple life with a, a family and and friends and and things like that i i don't think um i think she liked the trappings, but I don't think that she was, um, how do you put it? I don't think that she demanded them. I mean, people comment from comments from, you know, people at, uh, in New York while they were filming, they all laughed when Dorothy wasn't on film on, on set or on in front of the camera, she was in a director's chair reading books like great expectations by Charles Dickens, you know, the classic novels. Um, Because I think there was that, um, I think she had the potential to, to go further than high school, but I think because of her financial condition of her family, she didn't have the means. So maybe Dorothy would have taken, they all laughed. It wasn't the critical and, and, you know, popular success, but she would have taken those earnings and she would have put herself through college. Yeah, I can see that. Maybe studied acting in college and improved because I think she did enjoy that. Uh, And she did it. She did well. Uh, Everybody, like I said, she was a sweetheart. The, The makeup people loved her, adored her. 
The directors adored her. Photographers adored her because she took direction well. And she wanted to learn. So, you know, she wasn't a little diva who thought, I'm sleeping with the director, so you have to, you know, you have to do what I say. Um, and she was never that type of personality. So hopefully she would not have fallen into the trap of plastic surgery that most women in Los Angeles, yeah. uh, once they reach the age of 28, decide is necessary. Uh, because right. I think in, in Dorothy's case, those Dutch jeans were what made her look as ethereal as she did. And plastic surgery would have been an insult. Yeah. Well, and back to, you know, to take it back to Pamela Anderson, she was just absolutely stunning when she first came out and then, you know, plastic surgery just destroyed her. And you're probably right. She was probably 28 when she really started to become a caricature. Mm hmm. But yeah, you're and, right. I could see her. I, I could see Dorothy back in, um, you know, managing a real estate firm in Vancouver or something just as well as um, being an actress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like I said, I really I think she would have, you know, when she could afford it, I think she would have gone to college. And if she didn't study acting, she could have studied any one of a number of things. I think, you know, like I said, she was very intelligent. And people underestimated her, I'm sure, frequently. Um, but her chance to do anything was taken away so uh, so cruelly. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure Snyder probably was the number one person to underestimate her. Yes, because I, I think he thought she couldn't do without him. That without him, she would be nothing. And while, yes, you you got her foot in the door, but even that, you got her to overcome her shyness and do something out of her comfort zone. But everything that came from that is from her. Exactly. Because you have tried that with other women and Playboy says, I don't think so. Because Dorothy had that it quality. And, and you and I talked about it maybe toward the end of the episode last week, or we may have talked it after we, we ended the recording. But I mean, this case, Dorothy is a contemporary of mine. And I remember this day. I remember hearing on the 15th about the murder the day before and reading I think the Village Voice article was picked up and published in multiple newspapers shortly after it appeared in Village Voice. And I remember reading this story and thinking, oh my God, how terrible. And then I saw the TV movie in 81 with Jamie Lee Curtis and the guy from Hill Street Blues, which was totally ridiculous. And I'm sorry, I love Jamie Lee Curtis, but she was very ridiculous for <laughs> Dorothy um, because she doesn't have, you know, she has that girl next door look about her, but she didn't have the ethereal quality that Dorothy 
had in addition to the girl next door looks. Mario Hemingway. Was it Mario? Yeah, that's right. She had a sister with an M. That, yeah. Um, I confuse them sometimes. But yeah, Mario Hemingway. Mario Hemingway was perfect. Yes. In Star 80, directed by Bob Fosse, who apparently died shortly after the movie was released. Um, and if you want to know more about Bob, Bob Fosse, all that jacks. <laughs> uh, it was a, a Broadway play and it became a movie with I don't remember who um, yeah I honestly didn't even realize he I had known him just from Broadway I didn't even realize he directed motion pictures so I he, learned something new today do, he directed a few but not he directed a handful but most of his work was on Broadway as a director, a producer, and I think a choreographer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I remember this. And for some reason, I hadn't gone to Delaware that summer. So I was at home in New Orleans. And I cried because I thought, you know, this poor woman and the pictures that they published there were a couple of playboy pictures but most of the pictures that they had in the article that i read were just the normal modeling type almost like catalog work and how beautiful she was i mean even at 15 i could see that she had something that very few women have Right. And it's a, like a once in a lifetime thing. So, I mean, in the end, she'll always be young. She'll always be beautiful. As they say in Steel Magnolias. That's <laughs> very true. Yep. But, um, you know, I'm sure. And again, my heart breaks most for Louise. Because they were having a visit. They had plans. She was just going to be gone a couple of hours and she never came back. All right. And especially to be, you know, being away from home in a strange place with, you know, with a strange man, you know, it's just right. going to be horrible. Right. With strange people, because I'm sure there was more than just Bogdanovich. I mean, I'm sure he had staff people. Right. At the house. Um, and, um, you know, but that's another thing, like I said, I, I think Dorothy Dorothy could handle that lifestyle, but she didn't have to have it. She could be just as happy in a little apartment cooking for herself and cleaning for herself and taking care of herself because that's that had been her life. Mm-hmm. So um, now, uh, as I said, Bogdanovich, to talk about his character a little bit, he did take the Hoogstraten family under his wing. And he did a lot for them in the intervening years. Yeah, and he did, you know, when I, the interviews I'd seen with him on different shows, he did seem to genuinely care about her. It did not seem phony. No, and, but I, I, I kind of wonder, though, 
if they were just in that honeymoon phase where it was new right and it was perfect and the warts hadn't appeared on either side yet right for him or for her um so where it might have ended is anybody's guess right well he does seem to have a history of dating young starlets in his movies so and and he wouldn't be a shocking ending if he had you know found someone else in a few years yeah and he had a history of intense affairs like with civil shepherd that only lasted four years or five years or six years um, that ended somewhat acrimoniously. Um, And I think with her being 20, she may have, uh, she may have liked the comfort and she may have liked the fact that he, that Bogdanovich may have been the first person that treated her like a grown woman. You know, Paul treated her like a little girl that needed his uh, direction and that couldn't get along without him. But Bogdanovich didn't treat her that way. So, but eventually he may have thought, I'm older, I know better, I'm going to tell her how to make her career better. Yep. So... You know, you just never know. And it's a, it's a what could have been that drive you crazy. It's the same way with racehorses. What could have been for Ruffin? What could have been for Eight Bells? What could have been for Barbaro? Because we're coming up on Kentucky Derby. That's true. Yes, we are. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a big fan of horse racing. So, and horses in general. Um say anything bad about American Pharaoh or justify and I will fight you. (laughs) Well, maybe, uh, maybe in May, maybe we should do a, uh, maybe we should do a, a horse show. Actually, we would have to do it. Oh, you know, well, we would have to do it after the Kentucky Derby. Um, I am a little program note. Uh, I am going to take the weekend of April 30th and May 1st off. Because my um, firm has a crawfish boil across the lake in St. Tammany Parish. Tis the season, y'all, for crawfish. (laughs) And I will be attending the crawfish boil in St. Tammany Parish. So I will not be at home to do my prep on Saturday. That sounds like a great trade-off. Can't miss um, crawfish season. Now... Depending on how I feel, if I feel like doing something on Sunday, I'll let you know. And maybe we can do a horse racing. Because that's generally a pretty easy, you know, we can look at the field for the Kentucky Derby. Um, I'll reach out to my friend Joe Neville and see if he's got his haikus uh, ready to go. And if he doesn't want to join us, I'll, I'll copy him and I'll read him and give him full credit. Um, but yeah, we may, we may take that weekend off and then do, do the, do the Kentucky Derby show the following weekend, which should only be the day after the Kentucky Derby. So instead of looking at what might be, 
we can talk about what happened. Sounds great. Actually could be very interesting. Absolutely. And we have the disqualification of Medina Spirit to talk about too. Because he was disqualified from the 2020 win. And that is the, I'm having a senior moment. Who is the trainer? Bob Baffert. That's right. Bob Baffert. Yes. Bob Baffert, unfortunately. Um, I personally think that the sensitive drug testing methodologies that exist now have come back to bite poor Bob in the butt. Uh, because, and the zero tolerance policies have really resulted in his explanations being ineffective for how a test could have come positive. Uh, but I think part of it is the testing can now detect things that it couldn't detect before. Right. Yeah, so and, he's he probably hasn't changed as much as the testing technology has changed. Yeah, um, but um, you know, and I think it's something that could have happened to anybody, but it just unfortunately happened to Bob. So, um, and I, I think with the with the the controversy over the testing with Justify and the Santa Anita Derby left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. And so when additional testing came up dirty with Baffert horses, it led to him losing his reputation. And now nobody trusts him. Yep. Yeah, you can't, as we say, it's, you, it is, Virtually impossible to get your reputation back. So, yeah. But, I, you know, I think, I think for Bob, he has won two triple crowns that he should just hang up his stopwatch, maybe go into bloodstock because he has, he has been known to pick some good horses at the auctions and the sales um, or to simply retire and spend time with his family. Maybe let his sons or his youngest son, Bodhi, let him step forward and start to shine. Makes too much sense. I know. I know, Bob, call me. <laughs> follow me on facebook find me on twitter so we'll 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 look at that um uh and uh we've got we were gonna look at gloss up next week but we changed gears at kyle's request i had to do it um so uh Anybody who's listening, if you haven't already, and if you have Hulu, watch the Melissa Lucio documentary. Um, we're going to talk about Melissa Lucio next week. Yeah, that'll be interesting, especially with all the, is it getting as much, is it getting, I think it's getting quite a bit of national press. Being in Texas, we're getting, you know, probably seeing maybe a little bit more of it, but. It, 
It is getting a lot of national press. Frankly, while she does have an execution date of April 22nd, I don't think that it is going to go forward. Um, She filed a writ of mandate at the Court of Criminal Appeals, and they have just requested a response from the state and the judge and DA against whom the writ of mandate was filed. And for the Court of Criminal Appeals to be able to address the issues, um, there's not enough time. Now, I will say that the Innocence Project knew these issues existed, so they really could have filed on behalf of Melissa Lucio before a, an execution date was even asked for. But they waited until not only after it was asked for, but without enough time for it to be resolved completely prior to the execution date. So I think she's likely on that basis to get a stay. Could be wrong, but that's, you know, that's my prediction. Yeah, I bet you're right. That would so. be a safe bet. As we tie it back into horse racing, I would, um, <laughs> that seems like a safe bet. Mm-hmm. Yes, I know. But, you know, you never, you, you never know with, uh, with the Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, who knows? They may be, they may be, they may have read hers. They may be standing by to read the, the responses and they may be ready to issue an opinion as soon as they get those responses. I don't know. Right. So, all right. Well, I guess that is, I guess that is us for today. Do you have any final thoughts? No, I think you did a really great job as always. And this is, you know, it's, this is a, all of these cases are tragic, but this one is, you know, I think you said it well, her kindness, it's just, it's so tragic because Dorothy Stratton's kindness and just really willingness and patience and really trying to be the good person that she was, seeing that lead to her downfall and you know, her light extinguished so horribly and tragically so quickly. I mean, it's just, I don't know, it's, I'm a little bit of a loss for words. I mean, as you said, you think about somebody within the span of what, two, Two three years years goes from working at a Dairy Queen to one of the, you know, most famous women in the world in that given moment Mm -hmm. to then suffering just such a horrible tragedy. It's just really... It's really sobering. Yeah, it is. And I I don't think she ever truly saw Snyder for who he really was. I think she had realized he didn't love her as much. I think she realized he wasn't who he held himself out to be. But I don't think that she realized how depraved he was and that he really was just a predator and I think in the end that's the saddest thing because there were so many people around her who told her that who you know 
from the time she got to Los Angeles, everybody in Playboy, the girls, Hefner, the photographers, you know, the, the, the administrative people in Playboy, everybody said, you need to get away from Paul Snyder. Yeah. He's no good. Yeah, it is. It is always just, I guess, fascinating the way that these people are able to manipulate and control someone and how these, you know, poor, poor victims just, you know, cannot see the obvious. It's just so Mm -hmm. tragic. Yeah. And sometimes people don't put two and two together. I think the PI could have put two and two together and said, gone up to Dorothy when she pulled up and said, don't go in there, girl. That's not a good idea. He's not in a good place. Keep driving and let her stand him up. You know, and it's kind of like the time travel shows where they go back and they change something like quantum leap or, or um, the one that was on NBC a few years ago, that was actually a very good show, but got canceled. Um, You know, they go back and they change something to make things better in the world and, and you know i wonder you know i wish somebody had gone back and changed that thing it's one of those moments i'd like to see change yeah for sure um all right well thank you for listening to based in fact a true crime podcast if you like the show and want to know more you can find us on facebook or follow me on twitter at o'brien l Ann. Join us next week for episode nine, State of Texas versus Melissa Elizabeth Lucio. Lucio was convicted and sentenced to death in connection with the February 17th, 2007 death of her two-year-old daughter, Mariah Alvarez. During a five-hour interrogation, Lucio admitted to abusing Mariah. Now, the Innocence Project has inserted itself into the case, making claims that Mariah was never abused by Lucio and that a fall down the stairs caused her death. We'll talk about the evidence against Lucio and the twisted version of events being presented by the IP in an attempt to stop Lucio's April 22nd, 2022 execution. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.